Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports show, where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. I'm Michael Barr. I'm Scarlett Fu. And I'm Damian Sassauer. And on the way today, we got a chance to catch up with an old friend of the show, Steve Olenek. He's chair of the sports and entertainment practice at Mintz. I can tell you it's finding the right opportunities, number one. Two, there's always a cash plus an equity component. And two, how they can actually monetize and activate those businesses based off the talent. So you have to fit and match. And this is where the truly the team comes into place, where you can find the right opportunities where they can help activate. We covered a lot of ground with Steve. As you know, Steve covers endorsement deals. He covers the world's biggest superstars. I mean, we talked Aaron Rodgers, RX3. We talked Kevin Durant, 35 Ventures. It was great getting his thoughts on some of the latest gambling headlines in the NCAA. We've also been focused on equity and sports for women. We recently spoke with Kara Nortman, who is co-founder of Angel City FC in the National Women's Soccer League. She co-founded a $100 million fund pushing for equity in women's sports. Kara talked to us about how excited she is for the future of female pro athletes across the board. I meet with people who get it, who are reaching out to me, who are calling me up, some of the most extraordinary people in the world who I would have been dying to get meetings with 10 years ago who are reading, you know, the why we're doing this post on the Monarch website, um, which comes from the heart and, and kind of makes the case from the head and the heart as to why now is the time for women's sports. That's Kara Nortman on the show recently. You can hear that entire conversation on demand now on the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. We're going to talk more about equity for women in sports. The WNBA season is right around the corner and interest is growing but player salaries don't seem to be. We'll dive into that with Bloomberg's Jenna Hawk. The numbers are abysmal. Women, the women, uh, basketball in the U.S. lays claim, professional basketball in particular, lays claim to one of the worst gender pay gaps um, in sports and, and just in the world. All that and more on the way in the Bloomberg business of sports. But we start with a company looking to do more business with women. Under Armour's new CEO, Stephanie Lennartz, says targeting women is one of her top priorities. For more on that, plus how the NBA is expanding its global footprint, we bring in Bloomberg's Kim Basine, who is just great in uh, anything he writes. He could he could put a tic-tac-toe board up on the terminal, and it would be very interesting. <laughs> Kim, thank you, man, for joining us on the Bloomberg Business of Sports. Hello. Oh, that was a great thank you for that. We appreciate <laughs> you. Well, let's start with something in a positive. This is something you wrote that Under Armour is trying to target women more than ever when it comes to the athletes and going on down the line. Tell us about that. Yeah, so Under Armour wants to target women shoppers more aggressively. So they've made it one of their three big priorities. It's women, the women's business, footwear, and sports style. What is sports style? That is uh, like off the court, off the field, kind of sporty fashion, streetwear, uh, that kind of thing. So right, right now, the women's business at Under Armour only accounts for less than a quarter, so less than 25% of their total revenue. Uh, they have a new CEO who just came in, 
and uh, she she wants to she wants to change that. I mean, it, it's such a big opportunity for them that that it's you know why did it take so long for them to <laughs> to, to realize it? How are they going to differentiate themselves from a Lululemon or an Athleta, which is owned by Gap, of course, um, or Nike, which has also put a big big focus on expanding its women's market? Years ago, when Lululemon started getting real real big, I think the whole industry also contended with that question, like Nike. Uh, and Adidas, everyone who was in the space were like, whoa, 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 whoa what, what's what's going on here? Like Lululemon selling more uh, leggings than 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 all of us all of a sudden. Well, how are we gonna How are we gonna fight back? And you know, they they started to, and and it's really coming. What they have to do, and what Under Armour now has to do, and the, the CEO identified this is come up with their own like go to product within this space, whatever that is. And with Lululemon, it's their yoga pant. It's the thing everyone goes there for and everything else is built off of that. So what is Under Armour going to do to get that one big item? Yeah. Not leggings, clearly, because that's that's taken. Right. Well, Kim, I mean, you mentioned it, right? Sports style, footwear and women. But, you know, quite frankly, research shops like Morgan Stanley, Cowan, Deutsche Bank and City have all lowered their price targets for Under Armour after the quarterly results underperformed just a few days back. So, you know, I'm wondering how much leash does uh, new CEO Stephanie Linartz have when attempting to right the ship here? She has said that this will be a year of building. So <laughs> at least a year. I mean, she, she's no gonna, bueno. Yeah, she, she's set that uh, <laughs> that timeline already. So this first year will be, you know, reconstructing what, what Under Armour does, embarking on this new strategy and, and seeing what happens. So let me ask you, does that, it, when you say style and everything, that sounds like designers will be brought in. There's going to be collaborations, all of that. Yeah, they explicitly said that too. Uh, sneakers, especially, are, it's such a collaboration-driven industry. Like to create hype for the next shoe that comes out that everybody wants. That's limited edition, and and that builds uh, everything else builds off of that. It builds off of all, all the marketing around mm-hmm. these shoes. So they they want to be uh, less. Oh, what did they say? They said less footwear culture and more sneaker culture. Huh? Get in with get in with those get in with those hype beasts, you know. Wait, it, wait, 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 wait. I like that reaction. Zaire Wade, Cape Town Tiger, limited edition. Less footwear, more sneaker wear. Less footwear, more sneaker culture. So, like sneakerheads, pe- people that, who really covet these shoes and want to resell them and want to take part in that whole that whole economy. Uh, right now, I don't think any Under Armour shoes really play there this yeah. is and there's a big hole that was just created by the 1.3 billion dollars worth of Yeezys that are sitting around in warehouses around the world uh, <laughs> so, so there's a there's a chance to get in here that this is an area that's totally dominated like by, a Britney by Griner Nike, sneaker right? you could do a Britney Griner sneaker of course uh, Sabrina Ionescu just got a sneaker four seconds left Ionescu a long three for the win and she gets it Sabrina Ionescu at the buzzer these are Things that that could happen. Mm. That's like you know, less hot dogs, more wieners. I, I, I'm trying to figure that out, but sneakers, not footwear. That's hey, man. I, well, okay. <laughs> uh, something else. NBA. They're saying, look, we're gonna we want to open some more stores, and we're not just talking about in Michael Barr's backyard. We're talking about around the world. Yeah, they want to open more stores uh, in so many other markets. Uh, they wouldn't share exactly which ones they were. Uh, they have 37 stores right now and told me that they could end up with, you know, 50, 100. It all depends. They're, they're just trying to be opportunistic with, with new locations. But in the last 12 months, uh, they've been very busy opening these stores. Paris, Melbourne, 
Johannesburg, Abu Dhabi, and then the latest one just opened in uh, Manila in the in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Uh, they said they want to do some catching up, is what they said in uh, in Latin America and especially in Mexico. So you should see more uh, more stores opening there. That just invites the question. They're competing with. I mean, there's a lot of NBA gear in those markets. It's just most of it happens to be pirated and counterfeit. Yeah, they work with a bunch of uh, a bunch of partners in these places for for the real. The real licensed product. There's a uh, Go Sport in France, Zebio in Japan, Centaro in Brazil. These are big chains that are local uh, that that they work with, and that's where most of this uh, merchandise is is sold. But like getting their presence in these international markets is crucial for the NBA. These are people who don't will never probably have a chance to go actually attend an mm, NBA game right. across the world, right? So you got to go to them. Mm-hmm. Well, Kim, you're onto something that's really interesting and it's sort of compare and contrast with what we were just talking about with Under Armour, right? Just the fact that the NBA has successfully partnered with these local retailers, Go Sport, you mentioned, I mean, El Corte Inglés in Spain, right? So, you know, my question is, is this the model that the NBA is going to continue to pursue or do you see these partnerships evolving as the pie continues to grow? I think they'll... Both things. They'll evolve and the NBA is going to want more of its own stores that it can fully control and really, you know, build the brand off of. Uh, They're opening these other types of attractions as well. There's the uh, NBA courtside restaurant up in Toronto. And uh, in Brazil, there's something called the NBA Park. Like uh, a theme park? It's like a theme park. It's it's a it's a three story complex. That's you know everything NBA. Uh, there's there's a basketball court inside, a restaurant, a store to buy jerseys, and uh, th- they want to open more of these you know different kinds of attractions around the world as well. You know that's a, a great idea because I, I can't think of the other other three major food groups in the sports that's doing something like this. Yeah, I don't. I don't think so either. International growth has been such a priority for Commissioner Adam Silver. Yes. So uh, Joel Embiid just won the MVP. He's from Cameroon. He's the first MVP since James Harden in 2018, I think, to have played in the NCAA. Because the previous four years it was Nikola Jokic and Giannis Antetokounmpo. Okay. So like neither of those guys ever played college basketball. You have to go out abroad to find these next big stars. You can't just scout the big schools anymore. Our thanks to Bloomberg's Kim Basine for joining us on the Bloomberg Business of Sports. Kim will be back with us to try to guess the number of the week. <laughs> Up next on the show, we take a look at the gender pay gap in basketball. That's straight ahead on the Bloomberg Business of Sports, Bloomberg Radio, around the world. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports show, where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. I'm Michael Barr, along with Scarlett Fu and Damian Sassauer. The WNBA season kicks off on Friday, May 19th, and there's reason to believe the arrow is pointing up. Certainly when you look at the financials, revenue is up for the league. Last season was also its most watched season since 2006. But staying with the financials, the athletes in the WNBA are not getting paid the way their male counterparts are in the NBA. So that raises a lot of questions. In fact, Brittany Griner, who, of course, dealt with being detained in Russia, spoke about this at her first press conference since coming home. She said she would not be playing overseas herself going forward, but does not blame women who do because of the pay gap. So I don't knock any player that wants to go overseas and, you know, make a little bit um, extra money. Um, I'm hoping that our league continues to grow and with as many 
people in here right now covering this. I hope you continue, like I said, to cover our league, bring exposure to us. I hope a lot of these companies start to invest in our craft. And we have Jenna Hawk, our own Bloomberg's Jenna Hawk with us. What took so long for some of these people out there to wake up and realize there's a lot of money in the WNBA? It's really hard to say exactly. I think the last couple years have really been a real inflection point for women's sports in general, and particularly women's basketball. Um, ratings have been at an all-time high over the last couple years, and so I think people are starting to open their eyes and and realize, like, hey, it's, it's really time to start investing in, in women's sports. Um, last year, they had the largest capital raised in women's sports history. They raised over $75 million. And some economists even say that that was probably too low and they should have um, raised even more. Okay, so money is pouring into women's sports. It's pouring into the WNBA. Uh, as you point out in your story, the revenue for the league has doubled. How much of that or how little of that, perhaps more accurately, is making its way into player salaries? A really small amount. Um, it's actually shrinking, too. So it's, it's less than 10% now. Walk us through why that is. I know there's a collective bargaining agreement there, but beyond that, wh- where's the money going towards then? Yeah, so um, the league will say that they're investing it back into the league to keep keep things growing. Um, but yeah, I, the, I think the problem really lies in this collective bargaining agreement that sort of laid out the salary caps back in 2019. Um, but that inflection point that I had just mentioned sort of happened a little bit beyond that in the last couple of two years or so. Um, and that just meant that players really sort of got the short end of the stick and they were getting played. They were, they were getting paid in terms of twenty nineteen dollars. But women's sports, again, has sort of massively grown since then. Well, we've seen, Jenna, how, you know, Brittany Griner was forced to, you know, find work in Russia. Right. Um, you know, right. when, you know, the WNBA wasn't able to pay her enough money. Um, talk to us about the CBA. When's it up? What can we expect? I mean, is it possible that, you know, we don't even make it to, you know, the end of the current CBA, like where there might be actually a player strike? I mean, what's the risk here? So the CBA technically doesn't end until after the 2027 season. So there's still quite a bit of time. Luckily, there's a clause in the contract that allows players or the league to opt out early so they could end um, the, the contract after the 2025 season. So I think... After this season, um, starting uh, later this year, and definitely um, the players and the union and the league are going to be spending lots of time in 2024 and 2025 talking about whether it makes sense to abandon this contract. And I think from the player's standpoint, almost all of them unanimously want to leave. You have a chart in your story, uh, and we're talking about WNBA players compared to NBA players and their take-home salary. The minimum for a WNBA player is $62,300. The minimum for the NBA is $953,000. And I only want to get into the highest paid. The highest paid in the WNBA is 234.9 in the WNBA. The highest in the NBA, $48.1 million. And someone's got to ask it, so it might as well be me. What in the hell? I agree. What in the hell? <laughs> um, yeah, this, it's, the numbers are abysmal. Um, the women, the women uh, basketball in the U.S. lays claim, professional basketball in particular, lays claim to one of the worst 
gender pay gaps um, in sports and and just in the world. Um, yeah, tons tons of money and resources is, is constantly being poured into the NBA. The same can't be said for the WNBA. Um, both leagues like to say it's not fair to compare one to the other because the NBA is about 50 years older. But we crunched the numbers, and even when the NBA was the same age as the WNBA is currently, they were still paying the players significantly more. So I don't know if that argument really holds up. There will always be people who say that if you're going to compare men's pay to women's pay, that the women will always... It, it, it just becomes an exercise in futility because the women will always be underpaid. Maybe the better way to look at it is the trajectory of growth in women's pay and how it's doing in the context of the WNBA's um, revenue increase. And as you point out in your story, a doubling in revenue. That comes, I'm sure, a lot of it from media rights. And the media rights have gotten more expensive. They've gotten more attractive to broadcasters. How much of that flows to players? Um, currently, none of it, which, which is a bummer. Um, yeah, so the the accounting within the WNBA is very complicated. Um, there's they sort of separate league revenue with team revenue, and it's it's really very a convoluted accounting structure. But basically, all the media rights and all the revenue from both media rights and national corporate sponsorships stays solely within the league, and the players don't don't get a sense of that. Jenna, I wonder, you know, I mean, I'm just looking quickly at, you know, some of the various different ownership groups for the 12 WNBA teams. And, you know, you have a lot of familiar faces, right? I mean, you have Joe Tsai, you have, you know, Monumental that owns the Washington Mystics. You know, you have, you, you know, you know it, it, a lot of the ownership groups are the same owners that own NBA or NFL or Major League Baseball teams. Yet we all know the WNBA is just a, you know small relative to those other, you know, the, the revenues that are generated by those other sports and those other and those other franchises. Is there any willingness on the part of ownership groups to change the game, to 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 sort of, you know, focus on the WNBA in lieu of what happened to Brittany Griner and try to right the ship? Yeah, I, I think there's a number of owners that are, are really trying to to change the narrative around the WNBA and to also make sure that there's enough eyes on the players as is deserved. Um I, I talked to a few different owners for the story, and a lot of them said they're they're really trying to make sure that um, they can help with like media rights negotiations in the coming in the coming years. Um, and they're really hoping to keep advocating on the players' behalf as well, which which was good to hear. You wrote in your story, the WNBA is projected to bring in between one hundred eighty million and two hundred million dollars in combined league and team revenue this year, and that's up from about one hundred two million dollars just about four years ago, but the players won't see any of that extra bounty. Why? This is coming back to that really strict collective bargaining agreement that was struck back in 2019. Um, there, There's a clause in the contract about revenue sharing, but there's really, really tight restrictions in order for that to actually be unlocked and for players to see any of that extra bounty and some complicated formulas and division of funds makes it almost impossible for them to sort of benefit from that revenue doubling. Our thanks to Bloomberg's Jenna Hawk for taking time to join us on the Bloomberg Business of Sports. That conversation is on demand right now on the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. Up next, we talk with Steve Olenek. He's chair of sports and entertainment at leading law firm Mintz. We'll get his take on some of the latest headlines in sports, including some recent gambling incidents in the NCAA. 
That is straight ahead on the Bloomberg Business of Sports, Bloomberg Radio, around the world. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Thanks for joining us on the Bloomberg Business of Sports Show, where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. I'm Michael Barr, along with Scarlett Fu and Damian Sassauer. Time now for us to check in with an old friend of the show, Steve Olenek. He's chair of the sports and entertainment practice at Mintz. He rubs shoulders with some of the big names in the business. So we wanted to get his take on some stories that we have been following, including with some problems with gambling in the NCAA. Steve, welcome back to the Bloomberg Business of Sports. How you guys doing? Man, doing great, man. It's, you know, it's I'm looking at the sports landscape, and then there are some dust-ups in the gambling sports industry, and that includes the... Uh, Let's see the Alabama baseball coach uh, with the NCAA, and uh, he got into some big trouble because I guess he was gambling on some stuff that uh, you don't do, uh, especially in the NCAA. Well, first of all, let me get your thoughts about that. And what in the heck happened? You know, it's one of those topics where everyone knows you can't do it, but then you try to get into that situation where it's like, oh, they won't catch me. And you know that you can't do it. You cannot place bets, whether you're an athlete, a student athlete, administrator, coach. And so oftentimes, you know what's going to happen, and you know ultimately you're trying to preserve the integrity of the game, and that's what the NCAA is doing, and you're bound to get caught. So at the end of the day, I mean, you know, you can't do it, and oftentimes people try or they think they're going to be smart and – tiptoe the line and and try to do things that wouldn't look like they're appearing to place the bet. But you often see in a lot of these situations, it always comes back to you get caught. Well, right. that's, that's like Iowa also doing 75 and a 55. They got uh, caught. 
Well, in this case, uh, Brad Bohannon was fired by Alabama because of this investigation into his suspicious betting activity on the Crimson Tides game against LSU on April 28th. What is the single most important legal issue that this violation opens up for Alabama? Well, that's an interesting uh, question. I mean, I think oftentimes in these types of situations, the school is going to open the investigation alongside the NCAA, Mm -hmm. and they're going to do their due diligence, and they're going to have to fully investigate. They're going to have to start doing some fact-finding in terms of questioning people. Did you know anything? When did you know? How did you know? And then you kind of shape that, you know, the narrative and your report, and then provide it back to decide what exactly happened, right? Because until then, you're you're fact-finding in terms of a lot of this stuff. Well, Steve, I mean, let's take a step back. I mean, Alabama baseball, I mean, Iowa State wrestling, I mean, how much is real? What's the handle? I mean, there's not a whole heck of a lot being bet, so it's pretty easy for, I guess, you know, compliance engines or sport books to kind of identify, you know, a, a, a bet that might not look very kosher. So talk to me about the technology that's out there. We've had Anna Sainsbury on from GeoComply. We've had Karsten Carl from Sport Radar. I mean, is there any way to beat the system? I mean, like, have people gotten away with you know, doing this for some period of time in the modern era? I mean, talk to us about your thoughts. What are you hearing there? I mean, I think like first and foremost, I mean, if anyone has an iPhone, right? I mean, they Mm -hmm. can track it. And so if you're going to place the bet, I mean, you know, if you're really thinking, thinking it through, I mean, they're probably placing it on their phone or something identified to themselves or their ID that they can track or any type of IP address that floats back to them. And oftentimes that's what's going to happen. You know, they think they're going to like be able to like come up with a creative way to get around the rules and regulations. But like, as I said before, there's like, it's like strict liability, you know, it's going to happen. And then if you get caught, you know, the outcome for the most part. Now with the NCAA, due to the severities, they have a, a committee on infractions where you'll actually put forth the case and then they'll kind of evaluate it based off of a panel of people some of which are lawyers, presidents, uh, coaches, etc. And what they'll determine is how severe the actual infraction was and then go from there. And when we last left, Steve, we were talking about the WWE oh. and organizations like that <laughs> getting into the uh, online sports mm. betting. Now, <laughs> if <laughs> and we said it back then, it's like, uh, okay. So I'm going to say it again. Uh, okay, Steve, <laughs> what what do we do about this now? I mean, I, th- I think, you know, I think what the NCAA, in, in terms of how they're shaping it, they, they to uphold the integrity of the game, they don't want anyone to participate in any type of gambling. And I think that's going to be their firm answer tied to this. I think all these workarounds, how people are going to potentially get around this, I think if they find or track anyone that participated in any type of gambling outside of the scope of you probably saw the exceptions tied to the UFC, uh, NASCAR or horse, I think horse race, anything tied not directly to a a specific sport. That's like an exception. Um, So that's where I think it's going to be. And I think it's going to continue to be like that on an ongoing basis. I don't think they're going to shape it anything more than that. I think from in terms of my actual opinion in terms of the uniformity across all the states and how gambling is set up between online, lottery-based, I think there has to be more consistency so that people, you know, they don't just say, oh, well, I didn't know. Because that's what oftentimes someone's going to say. 
I didn't know. That's what I always the say. The defensive, I'm dumb. Mess yeah. something up. I didn't know. <laughs> so compare and contrast the legal implications of professional players uh, violating sports betting policies versus college athletes, where you could more plausibly argue, I don't know, because the kid is 18. Yeah, I mean, in terms of like, say, like an NCAA athlete, like you kind of know you can't do it. In terms of professional sports, you know, still it's more often than not strict liability. You still can't do it, but it's how they go about doing it. You probably saw with the Lions, a couple of the players got convicted, you know, not actually, I mean, they got released, but Mm -hmm. then, you know, they got suspended. Um, So you, you really have to look at whether you're a student athlete versus a professional, but I think in terms of like the generalities, the answer is strictly just don't do it. Doesn't get any more than that. You know, I just want to shit. I want to pivot here. I mean, you've done a lot of work, obviously, on sports gambling and all that. But, you know, in addition to that, you advise some of the world's biggest superstar athletes on a broad range of complex issues, equity investments, branding and IP, endorsement deals, endorsement deals. Talk to us about the impact of FTX. Uh, and sports gambling, for that matter, on these endorsement deals, or more importantly, the willingness of superstar athletes, you know who I'm thinking of, but thinking of Tom Brady here, to get involved with some of these companies. And what due diligence must the athletes now do, superstar athletes I'm talking, before they get involved? Yeah, I mean, you you obviously have to know who you're getting in uh, into bed with, right, in terms of doing the due diligence, and then associating what the actual obligations are of what you have to do tied to those deals. Uh, more specifically, it's it's finding the um, the actual deliverables so that you can shape those deliverables to ensure that in terms of um, knowing what you're doing, how you're doing it, uh, what was being told to you. Um, so you're actually doing that fact finding and actually knowing what you're doing so that there's no ambiguity uh, in front of you. So it's it's really knowing who you're contracting with as well. It's one thing if someone comes to me and, uh, you know, old stupid bar. Hi, I'm Michael Barr for crack cocaine. No, I know perfectly well <laughs> that it's not up above board. But what happens when some of these companies really fool the the athletes involved? I mean, now there becomes a, a gray line. Well, how much did you know? Well, that's that's what oftentimes gets put forth in the court of law in terms of looking at the fact finding, seeing how it was gray, what was what was put forth, what wasn't put forth. Right. Because you won't know everything when you do the, you know, your diligence and you sign your name to the agreement. So you really have to know who you're going to be working with and then take that a step further, knowing that if something does go south, How do you resolve the situation and who is actually on the hook? Just to chime in here, I mean, do we really believe that Tom Brady's going to have to fork over a lot of money on the back of all this? I mean, do you see that being a strong possibility? I think it always comes down to what was actually put in the agreement. Yeah. The fine print. Okay. Steve, I got to pivot a little bit here and get your thoughts on the overall macro environment because we spend a lot of time talking about the economy, where it's headed, and things are definitely slowing down. Interest rates have been rising. Credit is tightening. A lot of people warn that a credit crunch is coming. This obviously has a huge impact on the world of sports, especially because valuations have gotten very high. Um, Sports is seen as an uncorrelated asset class uh, compared to all the traditional asset classes. And teams rely on a lot of debt for 
everything, financing their arenas, their facilities. Um, all the debt is inevitably priced off of U.S. Treasuries. From where you sit, and I know you're not a sports banker, but how much more complicated is the environment right now given uh, the overall rise in borrowing costs for anyone? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, you know, across the league, there's there's various metrics in terms of debt limits of what you can take on and how much of that debt restrictions can actually, in terms of a lot of these deals, like what actually is allowed, right? Mm -hmm. So more often than not, to answer your question, it's you have to really know that depending on the client, you have to look at that good old-fashioned financial statement Mm -hmm. and see if they actually have the money, right? Because more often than not, a lot of these deals, there's a combination of debt plus cash that they're putting forth. And then more importantly, when you start rounding out who's going to be associated to a lot of these deals, it's finding the strategic capital alongside that lead investor that's going to put forth the money and then round it out and shape that deal accordingly based off of who's involved, how much money do they truly have, what are they willing to put on forth um, in terms of you know looking at the pie and mm-hmm. kind of cutting the pie up. So- are you seeing any meaningful slowdown or even acceleration in the pace of deals or wanting to get stuff taken care of because there is this huge mountain of uncertainty ahead of us? Well, a lot of the a lot of these assets, I mean, and, and you said it, they're uncorrelated to the market, so they are nice and shiny assets. Yeah. So I think what you have to look at is like anytime there's a good asset on the table and people are looking to buy it, um, the question is is like can the deal actually be be done and at what price, right? Mm-hmm. Because the valuation keeps going up. And then, you know, do you have enough ready, available, willing buyers to actually buy that asset? And so I think it's finding out who actually will take that step. Because if you, if you think about, look at like the Carolina Panthers. Mm. Wow, we thought this was like, oh my God, David Tepper paid so much money for it. Then you see the Waltons, right? And it's like double. So you you always have ready, available, willing buyers. The question is, are you going to have that person that when you start looking at how many people can actually stroke the check of of being able to just put forth a real bid, depending mm-hmm. on at what level? I think it becomes complicated because think about how many people are out there in, in terms of realistically that can just strike that check. More than we realize, I think, is the answer. Yeah. yeah, and then you know a lot of it just happens to do how the leagues are going to open up whether they want sovereign wealth funds associated to league ownership. Our neato guy, Tom Keene, and he brought this up when we were talking earlier, and it's a very good point. Because, shifting a little bit here, because of the rule changes in baseball, more people now are looking at that as a bang-zoom investment. Because more fans now are getting engaged, the, the, the games are shorter, and, and more people uh, are starting to enjoy it. There's a renaissance in baseball, like a while. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. It scared me too. But <laughs> I mean, guys, we don't have Steve in the in the studio very often. Can I ask him a real question, please? Oh, I mean, please. Steve, oh, you, you know, you, I'm you starting to get comfortable. To, I'm starting to get wow. comfortable. You're, you're speaking to everyone out there. You know, you, I'm hearing, and I, I take, you know, I'm just going to go out on a limb. I know your offices aren't far from our own. That yes. you might be a New York Jet fan, you might be an Aaron Rodgers fan, potentially RX three. 
Kevin Durant, 35 oh, Ventures. What are these guys investing in? You know, what are you hearing from these guys? I mean, how are they lending their names, their brands, and how are they growing businesses? What What are you seeing out there? Yeah, so I, I do a lot of these deals. So I can tell you with um, some of the most high-profile, most prolific talent, um, uh, I have the pleasure to work with some really big names. I can tell you it's finding the right opportunities, number one. Two, there's always a cash plus an equity component. And two, how they can actually monetize and activate those businesses based off the talent. So you have to fit and match. And this is where the truly the team comes into place, mm -hmm. where you can find the right opportunities where they can help activate. It's not more so that you just either place um, an investment in a company and hope that it pans out. I think truly it's finding the right ones where you can – actually see the benefit of having that celebrity endorser. But I see quite a bit. I mean, you're starting to, I mean, in terms of, you could probably see, look at what um, Ryan Reynolds and uh, what, what he sure. just was able to do with men. I mean, you, there, every single day, I feel like there's like a new celebrity endorser that is coming out with something. I want to bring back what we're talking about with uh, the online gambling. Yes. On the other side, they're the NCAA employees that can get in trouble. Can the online gamblers uh, and online sites get in trouble for all of these controversies? That's a great question. Um, I mean, I, I think in theory, depending on once it, once it, who it goes back to, right, and how they go about shaping that bet, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're associated with a – uh, a school or you're employed by that specific entity, then you'd have to look to see where the kind of where the trail is going. Because I think, it, again, it's it also comes down to uh, you can't do it. Right. Some so. dummy is going to use their school email address. Oh, yeah. Well, and that, that's where I think that's where the investigation comes open. So, right. If you use that school email address and then they go do the fact finding that they're associated with the school that could be the trip up i see damien it's a lot it's a lot, it's a lot. <laughs> i I'm, I'm i'm dead serious i know you love the jets damien but i was dead serious man about sports improving their brand baseball did it football could do it well i guess you know because they are the you know they're the king yeah but but do the other sports need to follow suit so that there is more fan engagement and i.e. more money involved? I, th I think the question, though, Michael, there is, you know, at the risk of, you know, um, of undermining the game itself. You know, I mean, like sometimes when you try to tweak the game too much and you make too many changes, you, you, you know, you could lose audience that way. So I, I, I get the tug of war there. I get the push and pull. I think baseball was long overdue for an overhaul in this case. I think we're just scratching the surface. Yeah. No, I, I agree, man. It's, you know, trust me, the baseball renaissance. I, I agree with you. Man, Steve, you are the man. I mean, I, I got to say this. I think the Jets are going to be awesome. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, how does anyone think that, like, oh, Aaron Rodgers, is he going to forget how to play? I mean, come on. I mean, the guy's one of the of greatest. people do when they get to New York, so. I mean, uh, Steve, they are Steve. stacked. They are stacked. <laughs> How, just like, go. Just keep talking, Steve. Just I mean, keep going, like, baby. I mean, if you're thinking about, look at how they're building and shaping that roster. It's fantastic.
Oh, I mean, oh, and the coaching staff, it's all coming oh, together. I mean, it, it, like, I mean, it's going to be, what is that? What's that? J E T. <laughs> what is it? Wait, wait, wait. Am I hearing anything? Damien? Do I got back Scarlett, me up help us one? out here. Sorry, uh, Damien. <laughs> well, we like to thank Fireman uh, Ed. It's going to be a fun in. season. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great time for New York sports, to say the least. Oh, man. Steve Olenek, <laughs> chair of sports and entertainment practice at the law firm Mintz. Oh, you are the man. You see you see the way we are now. It's like we're at the dinner table eating and, you know, it's like someone didn't pass the rolls and now we're trying to, you know, have a moment. And it's, you know, we, we enjoy having you in the studio so much. Thank yeah. you, my man. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, kindly old friend Steve Olenek, chair of the sports and entertainment practice at leading law firm Mintz. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since a kid. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. Time now for the number of the week. And just because he loves the challenge, our own Kim Basine is going to try to figure out if he can solve the puzzle. I'm sorry, folks. I, I was a little ill, and so I was out for about. But you were collecting two. facts. But I was collecting facts, and now we're going to talk about the number of the week. And it's going to be a twist because we're into the middle now of the Triple Crown, horse racing's Triple Crown. Um, in 1978, affirmed won all three races to win the Triple Crown, but. There was another horse, Aladar, to do something in that year, racing in those three races, the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont. What I want to know is, what did Aladar do, and is the only horse to do this? This is not a number? This is a. This has a number. This has a number? Yes, it does. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to laugh, and I'm going to, uh, I don't know, he came in top three in all three races, my guess. Yeah, did he get second all three times? You know right. what? Right. This is why we got Kim here. That's right. Oh, my God. Eleanor oh, is the only go. horse in the history of the Triple Paris. Crown to come in second in all three races. The two are heads apart, and Aladar's got a lead. Aladar put a head in front, right in the middle of the stretch. It's Aladar and Affirmed battling back along the inside. We'll test these two to the wire. Affirmed under a left-hand whip. Aladar on the outside driving. Affirmed and Aladar, heads apart. Affirmed's got a nose in front as they come onto the wire. Oh, That's no man. fun. I, I felt so bad for that horse. I felt so bad for the owners. When you went, when that's you wild. Went so he race, came in second place, not even third. Wow, that's well, amazing. When you um, come in second, there's no accolade for that, right? You you, you lost. It you lost, but like there's betting issues that happen. Yeah, there's, okay. you bet you on know, top three, right? Yeah. You yeah, bet on you, the top three. Okay. okay. Plus, okay. you know, I'm, so I'm hung, sure I'm so hungry right now. I could eat a horse. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports Show, and we are here each and every week at the same time, plus online wherever you get your podcast. I'm Michael Barr on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. And I'm on Twitter at Scarlet Foo. And I'm on Twitter at D Sassauer. Thanks for joining us. Tune in again next week for the latest stories moving big money in the world of sports. Stick around. We've got a special bonus conversation up next with the co-founders of a new basketball team in South Africa. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports Show from Bloomberg Radio around the world. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. 
and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Thanks for joining us for the Bloomberg Business of Sports show. I'm Michael Barr. We talked about it earlier in the show. The NBA is looking to expand more markets, especially in Africa. The league is doubling down on investment in the region through NBA Africa and more. In this special bonus conversation, Bloomberg Business of Sports contributor Don Kissy spoke with Shante Butler and Dia Martin. They're part of a team of co-founding partners in the Cape Town Tigers, a new South African pro team competing in the Basketball Africa League. They spoke about the league, the positive impact beyond the court that basketball is having in Africa, and why they chose to dive into the project. Let's take a listen. Well, I think the attraction in general to be a part of the NBA um, Basketball Africa League was just the opportunity to build something from the ground up, um, be associated with an organization like the NBA, um, and also to really be in the continent, in South Africa, and really looking at the impact that we can have on community, the impact that we can have on women. Um, And that really drew me to the opportunity. Um, And with that, I was able to bring in Dia. And I think South Africa is just where the opportunity presented itself. Um, Our other business partner brought the opportunity initially to me. And the opportunity, South Africa didn't have a national team, a club that was built just to participate in the BAL. So we really just took advantage of timing, being in the right place at the right time. Sounds good. Um, Talk about the BAL. No connection there, right? Your business partner came to you with this opportunity. And what triggered you? What sparked your interest? Okay, he's a friend and a business partner, but there had to have been something more. Yeah, I think really... For me, it was about the opportunity to really build from the ground up, build a legacy, um, and really have direct impact on community, on young women. 
Um, the other part of that is that Dee and I have known each other since I was a freshman in college, um, and we had talked about doing something together. Um, and so this opportunity presented itself, and so it was a perfect time, perfect storm for us to work together. I think it's also important um, to look at the demographics. This is part of an expansion of the NBA and FIBA into Africa. And when you look at the demographics, the high growth rate, the growth of the middle class across the continent, it offers an exciting business opportunity that in some ways is a once in a lifetime opportunity to get in at the ground floor, um, working with an established um, organization to build a high growth sport across the new continent. Do you have any history on the Cape Town Tigers? Mm -hmm. And aside from this opportunity, what was the attraction? It's a young team. It's a young league. If anything, it's all still in its infancy. And two American women with no connection to the continent make an investment and have essentially propelled this team to the top of its game on the continent. Talk about that. So I'd say one of the things is, um, as African-American women, I think there is that diaspora connection. And that's part of the strong story that we have. So we have a predominantly African-American and African partnership. And so there was that belief in the growth of Africa and the opportunity to invest. So that, there was that very strong connection. I also think what's exciting for us, um, Cape Town Tigers is a new team that we started, that we founded. But we're also able to help to spur, develop, and increase the attraction and the impact of basketball within the country. So when we look at it, we don't look at it as just basketball. We look at it as basketball, arts, fashion, culture. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the um, dynamic, I guess, composition of our partner group, we're able to take all of that into account, building our team, our franchise, but also building the ecosystem for basketball in the, in the country. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the word ecosystem, and we do hear that a lot in business. People are always building an ecosystem, navigating through one. The ecosystem, when you mention it, do you refer to South Africa or the subcontinent as a whole? Because it is a league. And for example, this week, we have games being played in Egypt, of all places. And I don't know, the average NBA fan walking down the street probably isn't thinking of basketball games being played in Cairo right now, but they are. Mm -hmm. And these are professional players. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think when we it it's the global ecosystem, right? So it's not just looking at South Africa. It really is looking at one. How how do you first build it in Cape Town and spread that and build that grassroots following? But then looking at South Africa and then looking at the continent as a whole. So how do all these clubs come together and support what the BAL is trying to do, which is to use basketball, not only from a development perspective, but from an economic opportunity perspective for all these different countries, all these different communities. And it really is... Um, the opportunity to to take that and take it globally and expand that and leverage the diaspora. As Dia said, our partnership represents that, right? Represents that access to all these different avenues. And just one thing to add to that, we have that unique perspective in being able to take our team globally. So last year we had our New York City tour during the off season, and this year we'll do the same as well. So we really see ourselves as building a, a global team um, with the Cape Town Tigers. I like that word global, because <laughs> basketball is, if anything, it's universal. Yeah. But that's one game. You know, soccer is the beautiful game, but basketball is its own thing mm -hmm. all over the world, right? You need a net and a ball, yeah. and you're good. As with soccer, you need a net and a ball, and you're good. Um, the diaspora effect. 
how has it helped you? Mm-hmm. You mentioned diaspora. You've gone into a country that I'm going to assume that you're not too familiar with. What has the reception been yeah. in South Africa? It's been really great. Like it's this organic development and fan um, fan base. And I will say we've been very intentional about bringing the community along with us. Mm-hmm. And that really has been a differentiator um, of spending time in the community. We practice in the community, um, doing different events, different runs, bringing the kids along, supporting a junior's team and a young woman's team. Um, so that's been really important to us. And as we continue to grow and build, we want to do that more. Like we're doing a kids um, camp this year. So really trying to help build the infrastructure of basketball. It is definitely a global sport. But still, if you look at Africa, there's still this infrastructure building that needs to be done. And so that's a big part of our community part as well. Can you talk a little bit about your quote, your front office, the talent, the managers, your development team on the ground? You are both working professional American women, educated, connected, well-resourced. How are you dealing with this from across the world? I don't know if you're in Cape Town every week or every month. Um, What's it like managing it from afar? Well, we're lucky that we have um, one investment partner who's actually in Egypt. Our other investment partner, uh, Raphael Edwards, is basically in Cape Town. So he is uh, the CEO of the basketball club, so of the Cape Town Tigers Basketball Club, and he is managing on the ground, right? So managing the talent, um, securing the talent with our other partner, William McFarland. They both were former professional basketball players, so played all over the world. We've also been really lucky through them to um, secure local basketball talent um, in Cape Town and management. One of our coaches is the former uh, national player. Uh, One of our coaches is also a former um, national coach for South Africa. So we've been really lucky to be able to have support on the ground and leadership on the ground while Dia and I have been here running the back end and more of the operations from the service level investment um, uh, engagement and that type of thing. And it's very intentional and that we want to empower uh, players. We also want to empower staff and business professionals locally. So we really plan to build up the team by hiring and working with local professionals and those in the communities that we're in. I like those words, professionals, communities, intentional. You mentioned Severus, Mm -hmm. right? All of this was not done on a whim. It was planned. Can you talk a little bit about this holding company? Because when you hear, oh, I invested in this team, you didn't just write a check and say goodbye. Like you set up a corporation in the U.S., in Delaware. This is your operating vehicle to do things in another country. Correct. Talk about that. Yeah. I mean, Severus was... um, the brainchild of Dia, myself, and our partner, Raphael, the three of us um, coming together. Like I said, Raphael brought the opportunity to me and we formed Severus. Um, We really thought it was important to have this uh, U.S. entity, right, to be the owner of the Cape Town Tigers. One, again, to leverage those connections, to leverage the diaspora, to really be able to drive. We're based out of Delaware. We're here in New York to have connections to media, marketing, NBA, all of those things, it was really important um, to have that organization. And it also helps in terms of 
separation delineation of operations and business. Um, and we're also able to be Americans investing, you know, in the continent of Africa. Can you talk about the BAL for our listeners and potentially our viewers? NBA, National Basketball Association, BAL, Basketball Africa League, any relation or no? Sure. Yes. So the NBA partnered with FIBA to create the Basketball Africa League to set up and expand the sport throughout Africa. And the idea is by a joint partnership working with FIBA that has operations and offices on the ground and in different countries to be able to develop the league organically and build up the ecosystem again of basketball in each country to build the sport across the continent. So it's very intentional and thoughtful and is an amazing organization that includes a number of very prominent uh, investors from across the diaspora as well. Okay. Can you talk a little bit more about the diaspora as well? I know we touched on it, but in your private circles, what has the feedback been? Excitement. Okay. Ah, uh, <laughs> of course. You know, yeah, like, exactly. What? I'm in awe. I mean, you're doing what? Like, <laughs> yeah. Do your friends? Your friends are like, what? You just wrote a check. I mean, talk about <clears throat> what got you to sign the check. Yes, you're um, building community. You're building legacy. But I'm sure this wasn't a ten dollar check. No, you know. When you're in it, you're just in it and you're just writing checks, you know what I mean? And you're just reacting. Um, but I think it really goes back to the legacy that we know we're building, um, the example, the impact that we know we're going to have on women and in particular young women, um, you know, that anything is possible, even surpassing your dreams is possible. Um, and so I think for me, it's it's that piece. It's the piece of you know, being my mom's wildest dream come true. It's all of those emotional, familial things. And like I said, Dee and I have known each other since we were, since I was 19 and you were 17. And so we go back and to be able to do this together is pretty amazing. It's incredible. It's a beautiful story yeah. for the beautiful game, right? Yeah. The other beautiful game. Um, so can you tell us what's next? I mean, talk about your season and the structure. What's the scheduling and the season like for you guys? And as investors, do you want more? Do you want less? Do you think it's just right? Do you think they should be doing more? I definitely think we have a very long-term perspective and vision for Severus LLC, the Cape Town Tigers, and the organization or entity that we want to create. And so, yes, we definitely want to do more, but we want to do it in a different way. Whenever I talk about investment and investors, I think about us in a sense, I always like to think we're democratizing capital for investment in sports. So one of the really exciting things is our family and friends have been so excited that we've been able to attract investors that aren't typically able to invest in, in teams, sports teams, professional sports teams to invest in us. So we have a lot of women investors across the diaspora. We have a lot of family and friends. And to be able to open up that pool of potential for investment has been amazing for us, as well as the example that we've set for our nieces and our cousins and our and our community. It's for really sure. Exciting. And it all goes back to the little girls too, right? Yeah. Like they see these two women just, just doing it. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's always risk involved with any investment, mm -hmm. big or small, but it seems to be paying off in different ways. Yes. I, we won't go too much into the financial payoffs, but you mentioned words that are very important, particularly to people of color around mm -hmm. the world, legacy, yeah. right? And so much has been institutionalized, but we have to keep things 
in a certain circle to keep moving forward. Yes. And I think your story, sports fan or not, that is probably resonating a lot yeah. with a lot of people and making people feel seen, frankly, mm -hmm. making people think, OK, I think I can do this, too. Ten years from now, I want to write a check. Mm -hmm. I want to be part of this. And you're this is a roadmap. This could be the blueprint for much, much more. Yeah. And we, we look at it like that, right? We want to be an example club of this is how you do this in the BAL. This is how you build a club from the ground up to be able to be competitive in the BAL from their inception. Mm -hmm. um, and it is through a cross-functional leadership. It is through having a common goal and vision, right, for, for what we want to do on the court, outside of the court, in the community. Um, and that really has been um, our driving, you know, force. And the our partnership and our leadership group, we're like brothers and sisters. So we celebrate like brothers and sisters and we disagree like brothers and sisters. But that is the beauty of us and, and the camaraderie and the love um, to really bring all these different folks and different perspectives together to really build this amazing organization. Mm -hmm. That's Shante Butler and Dia Martin, co-founding partners of the Cape Town Tigers, speaking with Bloomberg Business of Sports contributor Don Kissy. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Business of Sports show. For Scarlett Fu and Damian Sassauer, I'm Michael Barr. Join us again next week for the latest on the stories moving big money in the world of sports. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports show from Bloomberg Radio around the world. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.